0: Our solar system has one sun, eight planets, almost 200 moons, and millions of asteroids. Without them, life on Earth might never have gotten started. Collisions with asteroids could well have been the source of the water in our oceans, and of other building blocks of life on Earth. And we humans might even owe our existence to one asteroid in particular. A big one, maybe seven, or eight, or or nine miles across. It crashed into Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula about 65 million years ago. The impact was more powerful than a million atomic bombs, creating a vast cloud of ash that blocked out the sun for years and years. The asteroid caused massive climate change that wiped out the dinosaurs. With a cooler planet and the big competitors out of the way, that created an opportunity for mammals, like us, to exploit. Ultimately, that asteroid impact helped make the Earth a place where humans could thrive. Now, 65 million years later, NASA is going to actually visit an asteroid. Status check. Go Atlas. Go Centaur. Go Osiris-Rex. On September 8, 2016, NASA launched a mission called Osiris-Rex. And liftoff of Osiris-Rex. After a journey of two years and more than one billion miles, the spacecraft is now zeroing in on its target, an intriguing asteroid named Bennu. It's a spinning space rock about a third of a mile across. It was discovered only in 1999. It's named for an Egyptian deity that took the form of a heron. And Bennu is not so different from the asteroids that made possible life as we know it here on Earth. From PRX, this is Orbital Path, a show about the cosmos and our place in it. I'm Michelle Fallin.
1: Carbon forms the basis of life as we know it here. And one of the things we're looking for on Bennu are these carbon compounds and possibly even amino acids, the building blocks of life.
0: That's Dr. Amy Simon. She's a senior scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center She has a key role in the OSIRIS-REx mission. On December 4th, OSIRIS-REx will arrive at Bennu, and what was previously a speck in the night sky will become a piece of evidence in understanding the past and possibly safeguarding the future of our planet. An
1: asteroid is a leftover piece from the building blocks when the solar system formed. As the sun formed and there was this cloud of debris and gas still left over, it started to coalesce into little pieces. And those built up over the time into planets. And so asteroids are either the leftover pieces, or they're part
0: of a planet that got broken up. So the Earth would have been formed from these small pieces billions of years ago, but they've been changed. I mean, they've been melted, and there's been erosion and water and all sorts of things. But but the asteroids up there in space haven't changed for billions of years.
1: That's true for the most part. We have some that are literally leftover from when they form, but in general, because they don't have an atmosphere and liquid water, they're not suffering erosion. They're not changing over time, so they can be literally a billion years old
0: so this really is something that's preserving our origins it's actually some evidence of of where our chemistry came from you know the very beginning of the solar system there's a there's a wonderful story in there
1: that's right and so so we're kind of piecing together the pieces almost like the fossil record we're looking at the fossils of the solar system Some are actually mostly metal. The iron meteorites that we see here on Earth are based off those iron types of asteroids. And others have very rocky surfaces, but they tend to have a lot of carbon. And they have little inclusions in them that are almost like melted glass or things that you'd see near volcanoes. Those in particular are very interesting because carbon forms the basis of life as we know it here. And one of the things we're looking for on Bennu are these carbon compounds and possibly even amino acids, the building blocks of life.
0: So we talked a bit about the Earth forming from asteroids, but then there was another very dramatic event in the history of our solar system where lots of stuff hit the Earth, sort of rained down on us. It's a time of some mystery. But we don't really understand all that much about it.
1: Uh, that's a time when we think there were a lot of impacts because this was the time when all those leftover bits were raining into the planets. And we see that in crater records, for example, on the moon. And so asteroids actually could have been very critical in forming the planet as we know it now because it could have brought amino acids to the Earth, these building blocks. We could have brought water. It could have brought all those pieces that we needed to form life later on.
0: I actually attended the OSIRIS-REx launch. Were you at the launch as well? I was at the launch. Yeah, that was a really beautiful launch from uh, from Kennedy Space Center. I remember going up to the rocket uh, beforehand. And uh, so it's been heading out to this asteroid called Bennu. Can you tell me a little bit about Bennu and why why was it chosen? When
1: we were trying to decide what our target asteroid would be, first of all, it has to be one that you can get to, near-Earth asteroids, as they're called, not out in the main asteroid belt. And then as we looked into which ones we could arrive at, which ones were the most special, we kind of made a pyramid. And Bennu ended up at the top of the pyramid because it met all of our objectives. It was extremely black, which means that it's covered in carbon, you know, asphalt, things like that. Like a lump of
0: coal? Like a lump that? of
1: coal. Reflect maybe 5 to 10% of the sunlight. Bennu only reflects about 3%. Wow. And it also has the chance of impacting the Earth.
0: There is a chance, a remote chance, but a real one, that Bennu could eventually steer a collision course for the Earth. More on that in a few minutes, but don't freak out yet. According to the best science, we've got a little time. It's taken Osiris-Rex two years to reach Bennu, and there was a lot of prep time before that.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, people don't understand actually how long it takes to do this. And there's that part before launch. You know, we started on this mission in 2009 uh, and launch was in 2016. So it's seven years just to get to launch. You know, if we're going to be launching anything into space, you have to make sure it's going to work in the space environment. So whatever's pointed at the sun gets very hot and whatever's pointed not at the sun gets extremely cold. And so you need to test everything over that full range of temperatures. You can't break. And We also need to make sure it's going to survive the launch itself. Which, you know, it's a beautiful launch, but there's a lot of shaking. Oh,
0: yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, you can feel it from the rocket. Exactly. I mean, you're, you're two you can miles feel away it and it shakes you. Away. Yeah. So
1: imagine sitting on top of that rocket. And so part of the whole buildup to getting ready to launch is to make sure that nothing is going to break. We take it to its extreme of temperatures. We put it on a vibration table and we shake the heck out of it. And we make sure nothing falls off, nothing breaks. It still works. And we had to do that with every instrument on the mission and the spacecraft itself. My role is as an instrument scientist, so I helped build hardware for it. But in particular, we built the visible and infrared spectrometer. And so this particular instrument takes the light and breaks it down into a spectrum, just like a raindrop will break sunlight down into the rainbow. But now we're doing this over the range that your eyes can see and out into the infrared where you can't see. We're basically looking for the fingerprints that correspond to each molecule that could be on the surface. For example, water. Or some of these organic compounds that we're hoping to see.
0: There's so much information you can get out if you break light up into its component colors, like you said, uh, you know, breaking the the white light up into a rainbow. You know, you can actually tell from a distance what something's made of. Absolutely. You
1: can tell what it's made of. You can tell its temperature. You can actually even almost tell the particle sizes on the surface, how big they are, based on how much of that infrared light they absorb and how much they give back off. So you actually can learn a whole lot of diagnostics without ever touching the surface.
0: But there is a lot more you can learn if you actually get to the surface. OSIRIS-REx is built to do just that. The climax of the mission involves taking a sample from the crust of Bennu. Because Bennu is small, that's tricky. OSIRIS-REx is going to be orbiting around this asteroid. The asteroid is a small body; it's only about about half a kilometer across. So there's not a lot of gravity. I mean, it, no. so when, when, you, when you think about going into orbit around something, you think about the gravity sort of attracting something, and you go into a you know into sort of this this path around it. But it's different with an asteroid. I mean, how, how does the spacecraft stay around this little thing? Yeah, absolutely.
1: This is actually really a unique case because most of our other missions to asteroids, they've been pretty big asteroids. Yeah. You know, Ceres, Vesta do have some gravity, and this is considered a microgravity environment. So We're kind of co-orbiting the sun with it, uh, rather than really relying on its gravity to hold us in orbit. And so we do have to do a lot of very careful navigation to make sure that we stay co-rotating with the asteroid when we're trying to map it or when we're trying to touch it. And it's, it's a new challenge that we really haven't done before. We've been very slowly approaching this asteroid, much slower than we normally do. It's not a big body, doesn't have a lot of gravity, so we don't have a big, enormous burn to get into orbit. We just basically slow down and stop. Now, once we're there, what we do is we start mapping out the surface. The asteroid rotates in about four hours, which is pretty fast. And so we can just basically hover with our spacecraft and scan up and down and let the asteroid rotate underneath us and we can build up maps that way. And so that is actually our primary mapping technique is to let the asteroid do a lot of the work for us. So after our arrival in December, we'll map the asteroid for about a year. And once we've completed all that and we've narrowed down some places we might like to sample, we'll do a couple close flybys of those places. We'll map those out. So you can see this methodical approach of building up more information.
0: And what are you looking for
1: for a place to sample? What are some of the criteria? So we can't have big rocks. We don't want to try to touch and tilt the spacecraft or not be able to pick anything up. So we'd like a smooth area. We'd like an area that looks like it has loose regolith or or dust so that there's something to pick up. So that's all part of sampleability and safety. And then the other part of this is looking for a scientifically interesting area. And that would be someplace that perhaps has organics on the surface. So we'll we'll pick those couple sites. We'll map them in more detail and from those narrow to one. And then we'll do what we call our basic practice approaches, So, we have to make sure that we're going to approach safely because, although again, there's not much gravity, it is rotating pretty quickly. So, we will get up to what we call a match point where we come down towards the surface and stop and match the rotation of the asteroid. So, we show the whole spacecraft
0: comes down. The whole spacecraft
1: comes down and we hover over a match point to show that we can match the rotation. Once we think we've done that, we'll practice that a few times. We'll actually get to the point where we can go all the way down and touch. Now, we don't land. We literally kiss the surface. We just barely touch, and we will shoot off nitrogen, which will loosen up the soil and pull it up into our collection system like a vacuum. And we back away almost immediately. So it's literally seconds. And then we'll do something interesting, and that's to make sure we got a sample. And we have a few ways to do this. The first is we have cameras that point at the sample collection system. So they can look at the bottom of it and hopefully see loose dirt on the bottom of it. Uh, We can also turn the spacecraft and put that towards the sun so we can see through the side (laughs) and see if there's anything in there. And then the last thing we can do is we actually spin the whole spacecraft and that's to see if our moment of inertia has changed.
0: And what, There's more mass, right? Right. We right. have
1: more mass hanging out on this arm that's about three meters long. And so that'll change how the spacecraft spins. Hmm. And so we'll use all three of those to determine that we got a sample.
0: And then we're hoping for a couple of kilograms.
1: Up to, up to two kilograms. Uh, but our requirement's actually down in the tens of grams. Right. So we don't actually have to get much. But, of course, the more we get, the better because that's more
0: that we can archive for later use. It gives you a sense of how, how precious this stuff is. I mean, I mean, even just a couple of grams is, is scientific treasure.
1: Absolutely. So once we know we have that sample, we will put it into the sample collection uh, system, our whole sample return canister, essentially, seal it off, and then we sit and wait. We can't just immediately turn around and come home. We have to wait until the spacecraft and the Earth are aligned in the right way, and so it takes us a while till we get to that point. And that's when we we will then burn and leave the asteroid and head towards Earth. So we don't actually get our samples back until 2023. You know, we'll be taking those samples, looking at them under a microscope. They'll be breaking them down to see what it's made of. And so I think some of the tests that are going to be done don't even exist yet. And most of the material will actually be
0: archived. We're only allowed to touch a little bit of it. I have to say, this is one of the things that surprised me and I found was really uh, wonderful. Some of that sample we're not even going to touch. We're not even going to open up and look at at all. Well, why would we do that?
1: There's there's a few reasons. One is that we know that in the future there's going to be different laboratory techniques. There's going to be new tests that people will think of. And so you want to have some amount of material left to do those in the future. And if you think about it, we're still looking at Apollo moon rocks.
0: You know, there's still a sample of Apollo moon rocks that have never been touched. We know in the future there's going to be better instrumentation, better ways to make measurements. There are things that we will miss now that scientists in the future will be able to do. It almost reminds me, you know, I love love studying archaeology in college, and they said that in the Victorian era, you know, they would find an old sword that was, you know, from some Viking site and they would take steel wool and they would polish it up again so it was nice and shiny. And, you know, archaeologists today would just cry because what have you lost? I mean, you, you've you lost any sort of, you know, information about what the surface was like, whether there any remnants of fabric, you know, the site, all of that. So, I mean, I mean, even in 100 years, you know, the study of something like archaeology has changed. And we know that science is going to change as well.
1: I have those same thoughts, you know. I think of the Egyptologists, uh, you know, opening pyramids in the 20s. And they, they cataloged, but a lot of folks just ransacked, you know, where they were looking for the treasures. or And as you say, they might have scrubbed off some of the important scientific information by by being in a hurry. And so I think it's really great that we are taking the time, we're archiving, and we're going to save this for future scientists.
0: How how big is the spacecraft OSIRIS-REx? I mean, the whole thing.
1: Uh, The spacecraft's not actually all that big. It's maybe the size of a small car. Mm -hmm. And the sample return capsule itself is quite small. A person could pick it up. So after we leave the asteroid and we head towards Earth, we'll jettison the sample return capsule and then divert the spacecraft. So the spacecraft doesn't come back, just our sample return canister does. And it will come down into the desert in Utah. I think I might be planning a camping trip to Utah because I want to see that come back in. I think that's going to be
0: almost as fun as the launch. Is it coming in on on a parachute? It is, 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 into the Utah desert. Is it all the way to the ground or they try to catch it or is it?
1: No, it'll it'll crash onto the ground. So it'll land in the Utah test range just like some of the previous missions have. So, yeah, that will be kind of just neat to see that streaking in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, with, with the scientific treasure on it, I mean, all the way from an asteroid, you know, a sample of the early solar system coming parachuting down. <laughs> yeah, and
1: I think scientists, particularly planetary scientists, are kind of like big kids. We, we love to be out there in the rocks and, you know, under the stars and, and getting to actually touch and play with the science. So, you know, actually seeing a physical part come back in, that's, that's going to be really cool. <laughs> So it'll it'll land on the desert floor, at which point there will be a team that goes to collect it and brings it back. And it'll go to Johnson Space Center, where we actually have the moon rocks as well.
0: I mean, although we don't expect anything harmful to be on an asteroid, there will be sort of protocols. I mean, mean, we don't want us to contaminate the sample as well. That's
1: actually the bigger concern here. It's not so much anything from the asteroid. It's that we don't want to put stuff from the Earth all over it, because then when we go to analyze
0: them, we'll think we've discovered Earth. You don't want somebody to sneeze and all of a sudden you think they're amino acids. bacteria. Yeah, that's right. Oh, look at that. (laughs) Viruses. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, we said in a sterile environment, I mean, is is there like a special, uh, you know, trailer or something prepared for it or what what are they going to do with it? They do have a
1: facility. Basically, everybody will be gowned up, have bunny suits on, have gloves, you know, masks, the whole thing. And there'll be very specific conditions under which they can open the canister.
0: At that point, there'll be another century or so before a different objective of the OSIRIS-REx mission really comes into play. That would be the objective of security, and understanding whether Bennu, sometime in the future, might come hurtling towards the Earth. I asked Amy Simon if the asteroid's path might actually cross Earth's orbit. It does, actually. It is considered an Earth-crossing
1: asteroid, so there is always the potential of impact.
0: There's no no suggestion that there's an impact coming up.
1: Actually, Bennu is one of the asteroids with the highest probability of impacting the Earth, and so that's partially why we want to understand this. But that's still infinitesimally small. And right now, our best estimates are that it has about a 1 in 2,700 chance of hitting the Earth sometime in the late 22nd century. But it depends quite a lot on its other close passes it makes to the Earth in the meantime, which will deflect it.
0: we actually have trouble predicting what the real paths of asteroids are because they change.
1: That's right, so as the sunlight hits an asteroid, it pushes it just ever so slightly. So we call that solar pressure. But at the same time, it's also heating up the surface. Now, as the asteroid rotates and it gives off that heat, it gets pushed in a different direction. And so those very, very tiny, tiny, tiny effects over hundreds of years add up to change where that asteroid is moving, change its trajectory. So part of our goal here is to understand exactly that balance. And so there's very complicated mathematical models about this, but that's actually what we're trying to measure and figure out exactly how much this asteroid's trajectory will get tweaked and how much of a risk is it. But even so, the best models right now have a bigger chance of it impacting Venus than impacting Earth or being ejected from the solar system completely. So it's not something to worry about,
0: (laughs) but it is something we're studying. Amy Simon. She's a senior planetary scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, working on the OSIRIS-REx mission to Bennu. When you say the word asteroid to people, what they immediately think of is something dangerous, something that could impact the Earth. They remember the dinosaurs and all of that. Or sometimes they talk about the value of asteroids in terms of we could mine them, you know, there might be gold or platinum on asteroids. But to me, asteroids, just as they are, are far more precious than their weight in gold or anything else. They really are a surviving piece of the early solar system. They're what we were like billions of years ago. The chemistry, the composition. This is what the Earth formed out of, and eventually, yes, this is what we formed out of as well. So when we open that canister, and all those people in their bunny suits and gloves, the anticipation of opening something up and seeing a remnant of the solar system from billions of years ago, can you just imagine what that moment's going to be like? Thanks for joining us for this episode of Orbital Path from PRX. We'd love for you to check out more episodes at orbital.prx.org. Support for Orbital Path is provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More at sloan.org. Orbital Path is produced by David Shulman. Our editor is Andrea Mustaine. Special thanks to John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler reading their tattered copy of The Little Prince back at PRX. I'm Michelle Fowler. a little bit of dead stardust, signing off for now.